0: And a very warm welcome back to the camera podcast, Pubs Pints People. I'm Claire Phillips and this is the first episode of Season 4. My fellow podcasters are Ant Firulo and Matt Bundy and our theme for today's premiere is Modern British Beer and Cider. Hi, guys. Hello.
3: Hello, good to be back. season 4, eh?
0: (laughs) I know. I mean, it seems like only yesterday that that we were just... Looking at season one, we were even thinking about podcasts. So lots have changed since then, obviously, but lots of good beer and cider to
3: enjoy. Oh, yeah. Absolutely, I feel, I feel
4: good that we got through the recommissioning meeting with uh, with the camera uh, commissioning department. You know, we're back for season four. Yes, a pay rise as well. No. It's, a bit, yeah, bit, get,
0: it's, it's a bit like that Alan Partridge episode, isn't it? For the for the next <laughs> <Yeah>. series, <laughs> give us the <a> next series. <laughs> Smell my cheese. Uh,
4: yeah. So uh, I, I, yeah, I, I, we get a pay rise, don't we? We got a pay rise, so we get half a can per episode now. That's
3: I think that's it. Isn't yeah. it? <laughs> that's it. Indeed, indeed. Well, listen, this season, folks, it's good to be back, and we've got all sorts of. Interesting 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 themes, interviews and just general banter about what's going on with beer, cider, pubs and clubs throughout the land. We've had a few comments from people saying how much they've enjoyed listening to us during the dark days of the pandemic when pubs had to shut their doors which was you know genuinely lovely to hear but now light is at the end of the tunnel, pubs have opened and uh, you know in fact in some places near me even the perspex screens have started to make a disappearing act which is really interesting to see. So anyway whatever your situation with love to hear from you. What would you like to see, or hear rather, from the podcast this season in this post-lockdown world? Get in touch with us. Behind the scenes here at Camera, we really rely on a team of volunteers to make the podcast happen and that doesn't just include Matt, Clare and I uh, on the hosting side of it. It also includes our producers, sound editors, script writers, you name it. We need you. If you're thinking about volunteering or that it might be for you, then give us a shout at podcast at camera.org.uk We'll get one of the team to chat through what's involved and if you're interested, get you on board and we would be lovely to have you part of the team.
4: It would indeed. It'd be lovely. Now we've been on holiday, and we're leased from podcasting mm-hmm. since June. Uh, it's gone by in a whi- in a whisper, hasn't it? it
0: oh, certainly has. It, and, certainly uh, has. it
4: really has. Um, and now normally this would be a great time to get it all, away from it all on a summer break with family and friends. But of course, very importantly, being careful to keep the week of the Great British Beer Festival free. You don't want to be booking a holiday over that, usually, do you? Ne-
3: never big, have done. Never have. Big red <laughs> yeah. pen around those dates.
4: Absolutely permanent mark not not a pencil on that one so but unfortunately gbbf had to be cancelled for a second year running yeah. uh, a real shame it had to be um, and and instead camera put on the great british beer festival at your local with pubs being encouraged to run their own local replacement events uh, i went to one actually oh, did you? Uh, it was a yeah it was very good i think it, it was amazing how the community of pubs kind of took this on and um, you know, and kept it going in spirit with these local events i thought it was fantastic And also a few beer festivals did go ahead where they could be run safely, mainly the ones in the open air, you know, a marquee or two. uh, Ones that were lucky enough to have the space to do that. Um, And obviously protecting the beer and food from the great British weather. Uh, Not much summer to be had when you had the marquees outside, was there, this time, unfortunately.
0: Well, Um, actually, yesterday I was at a beer festival and the sun was absolutely baking hot and shining down it was it was splendid we were all outside and it was it was fantastic so um we got the, i think they got just about the only good days to put it on that they possibly could have done
4: They've timed it brilliantly, haven't they? I mean, so I guess if we shifted summer a little bit later, let's say we're going to have an Indian summer, we should do all the beer festivals now, shouldn't we, when it's uh, when it's sunny, at the time of recording uh, it's sunny um, and not putting up of all of that rain in there. But I was going to ask, actually, did, did anyone make it to a local event? Did you go to any beer festivals, Ant, as well, or...?
3: Not bonafide beer festivals. As much as I went, I, I had a small gathering and we had our own festival with lots of different beers uh, from, from some of the local breweries. So I I hosted a festival, I suppose you could say, um, but I didn't unfortunately get out to a bonafide festival as much as uh, I really enjoyed looking at lots of social events that going on in in the uh, in the area with some of the local pubs.
4: I, tell you, I love I love the idea that wherever you go, it's a beer festival, and Yeah. You know, it's just absolutely. in the garden, it's a festival of beer wherever you are.
3: I went the whole hog, Matt. I had my own little tasting notes, my own score sheets. We had a champion of the day. We had a session ale of the day. I even got some nuts and crisps out.
4: Lovely, lovely. Wow. And Claire, how was your, what was your experience yeah. like then, your sunny festival?
3: Yeah,
0: yesterday at time of recording, I went to um, the Chapel Beer Festival in Essex, which is at the Railway Museum. There's a camera-run festival in collaboration with the Railway Museum. It's a fantastic event. It's one of my favourite beer festivals. A bit scaled back this year for obvious reasons. Ticket only, again, for obvious reasons. But it's it's always a great day. You can sort of sit in a train carriage and feel you're in Brief Encounter or something like that mainly East Anglian beers this time around, but uh, a really good selection of beers and ciders. Um, I think they even had some wine. Obviously, I didn't really pay much attention to that side of it. But, um, <laughs> yeah, lovely, lovely sunshine. Good to see friends from camera branches around the region and, um, uh, and just so nice to, to be back and doing something that's normal,
4: really. That's nice. Well, I'm, I'm off to one this weekend, in fact. It will be last weekend by the time the podcast comes out. Burko Beer Fest. Uh, in my local town of Berkhamsted, uh, and apparently it's uh, it's going to start absolutely pouring down about three hours before the festival is meant to start. So I'm Perfect. just going to miss that that brief one week window of summer beer festival. I'm going to just miss it, <laughs> but I'm sure it will be great anyway. It's oh. Just put
3: your wellies on and and just enjoy the atmosphere. Just enjoy.
0: <laughs> and and uh, you know if you, if you're listening to the podcast and you've been to a festival, do let us know about um, festivals you've been to, and uh, if you've been putting them on, I know it's not been easy, perhaps. Send us your top tips for camera branches looking to put festivals back on again post pandemic. And if you want to find out about beer festivals and other events coming up this autumn and winter, go to camera.org.uk forward slash festivals. Uh, camera would obviously have announced its most prestigious award, the Champion Beer of Britain, at the GBBF, but because of the pandemic, this year's competition was cancelled. But voting for the 2022 award has recently opened. I've uh, started having a look at what I'll be voting for. Uh, You've got until the 1st of November. All camera members are allowed to vote. All you have to do is go to cbob.camera.org.uk to cast your vote. And we'll be talking about this and the latest camera beer styles in a future episode.
3: Mm -mm. Now, later in the month, the annual cask ale week is running. And that's from the 23rd of September to the 3rd of October. Hang oh on, oh hang on, oh hang on. That's a week and a half. It's a good ten days, isn't it? Well, I suppose you can't yeah. have too much of a good thing, can you? True,
4: um... that's fair. I'll let them off
3: for
0: it then. <laughs> All right.
3: There are two main themes this year with this uh, with matching hashtags. So they are uh, hashtag Stand Up for Cask and hashtag Pub Fresh Beer. And I agree with Pub Fresh. Nothing beats Pub Fresh beer, mm. in my opinion. And it's something I'm guessing we all uh, would like to see. But camera members would definitely be back in this one. So if you're listening, uh, do back these. Use the hashtags on your social feeds. Of course, all of the details can be found, including special events details at uk. And for local camera branches, if you're putting on any Caskale Week events, do let us know. We'd, of course, love to hear about them. And we could give them a shout-out
0: even, couldn't we? We certainly could. That'd
4: be great, wouldn't it? Now, we've done all of our parish notices, always start the season. We've always got lots of news, haven't we, from us being away for a while. Let's get back into the theme of this week, modern British beer and cider. And we've got an amazing uh, couple of interviews in this episode. Later, we'll be bringing you... Uh, amazing insight into British cider with the Gabe Cook, one of my heroes, um, the <laughs> ciderologist. His new book, Modern British Cider, celebrates the vast range of cider now available. Um, really hoping to get that as a late birthday present. Anybody listening? Um, and uh, and we'll also he looks ahead um, to the issues that the industry is facing, actually, and some solutions for the cider industry. But right now we've got Laura Hadland, whose book about Camera's fiftieth anniversary. Remember we were talking a lot about that in last yes, series yes. amazing book really good and she's interviewing this fellow beer writer matt curtis and his latest camera book it tells the story of modern british beer so it's a perfect fit for the episode mm, isn't absolutely. it absolutely yeah. we've planned it well um and uh, he's going to talk about how we've got to the situation we're in now with an absolute cornucopia of oh, beers available uh, and a uh, horn of plenty uh, for all, uh, so when you say it it's non, in its full form it sounds a bit dodgy doesn't it but it's a cornucopia of beers um, and some of which that's what nobody had even heard of 20 years ago have yeah, we like so it. let's hear from Laura and Matt about modern British beers
5: I'm really interested about this book because the first question I asked when I saw it was being released was, what is modern British beer? And, and why is now the time for you to write about it?
1: Well, I think it's important to say that the book is very based on my own experiences as someone who's written about beer for 10 years now and six of those professionally. In terms of what it is, I spent a lot of time thinking about how to define it. And in the second chapter of the book, I do establish a five-point definition of what I think modern British beer is and, and what I think makes a modern British brewery. And that might not be what people expect. It's not just breweries making hazy IPAs with the latest, most exciting imported ingredients. It's breweries who are responsible on a sustainability and environmental level in terms of the community and the people they reach out to with their beers. And their focus on making really delicious beers, whether they be exceptional real ales, cast beers, porters, stouts, red ales, Belgian-inspired saisons, lagers. You know, there's 2,000 breweries in the UK now, up from a few hundred 20 years ago. And the idea for the book came about when I thought about how, you know, when I turned 18, these beers didn't exist. And now I feel like with 2000 breweries, people coming of drinking age have all this choice, but we haven't really sat down and gone, well, what's happened over the last 20 years? What's changed? So that's kind of what grounds it, this idea that beer has changed forever, in my opinion.
5: So we're, we're in a, a new beer landscape almost.
1: Maybe evolved is a better word, because I think something else that I establish really early on is that none of the new stuff the sort of the hype takes away from our tradition you know there's a strong love and focus for real ale in the book and how that is very much a part of our culture now in the UK and how we should treasure it and you know a lot of new exciting breweries make great cask ale these things are not mutually exclusive
5: you're like Marie Kondo of beer talking about your broad spectrum of joy. So what are you finding the most joy in these days when it comes to beer?
1: That's quite an easy question to answer. I live in Manchester but for 15 years I essentially spent most of my adult life living in North London and although the the cask in London was great I genuinely think that the quality of cask beer dispense up here in the Northwest is higher. I've done a lot of research I've been very diligent in my pint research and I think the throughput here is generally higher. When I go to a bar, I see more people choose cask. I see casks turn over much more quickly, like get taken off after a day or two. So I think that really improves the quality. I also think that pubs might have a little bit more space in their cellars here than the typical cramped London cellar. That's just a hunch rather than fact, but generally the, the quality is, is high. So I really enjoy some good local pale ales and bitters, like anything from Marble. I've been enjoying beers from Torside and Rivington, who feature in the book, Sonoma." So fantastic beers like that. But also, you know, another beer that's in the book that I really love is Coniston Bluebird Bitter. You know, that's a great example of a traditional beer, really, that still fits very well into what I consider modernity
5: we are spoiled for choice now as you say over 2,000 breweries in the country and that must mean that it was pretty hellish to decide which beers made the cut into your book I imagine so how, how did you
1: actually go about doing that? So the original idea I was going to put 80 breweries in the book um, well, 80 beers I wanted to tell it specifically through the lens of the beers themselves and then grow the stories of the breweries and the people out from the beer itself so I, I started making a long list really Uh, Every time I thought of a clutch of breweries that I thought had a beer that would be relevant to the book, I put it on a spreadsheet and I kept building that up till it was at almost 300. And then it was decided to split the book by region because regionality is becoming more and more important like it was historically because rather than try and make a beer that appeals to everyone all over the country, if you're a small brewery, you want to make a beer that appeals to the people who live near you and, and can drink that delicious fresh beer. The 86 beers that went in the book aren't a definitive list of like, these are the 86 modern British beers that you need to drink. They are case studies, examples of what I set out in the definition in chapter two. And then I had to put a time stamp on it. I had to cut it off somewhere. And originally that was going to be the year 2000, but the more I digged into it, there were stories from the 90s. Kelham Island Pale Rider is a good example, or Rooster's Yankee. Those stories directly fed into what was happening. They got there too early. And a good example of where I cut it off was, so I actually wrote the entry for Hot Back Summer Lightning and it just didn't feel like it fitted in with the rest of the stories. It didn't build that narrative. It, although it's 86 little essays, that the idea is you read them in order and it builds the story as you go along. And Summer Lightning was the beer that felt like the end of tradition rather than the beginning of modernity. I'll be honest, I don't think any brewery in the book really ticks all five boxes. Um, they tick the majority of them, but I, the definition is something to work towards rather than saying this is where we are now. It's more of an aim and like this is what we should be pushing for as a, as a beer industry. And then to make that final hard decision, I just went with my gut if I'm going to write a book about how beer sparks joy, I want to write about beers that I like and that I enjoy. So when it came down to knocking the last few off and it was really challenging, I'm like, well, which one, if I had to order one of these at the bar, which one would it be? So as you said earlier, it was a lot of Marie condoing. <laughs>
5: <laughs> how have your ideas of modernity in the British beer scene been shaped? So looking to the future, what are your predictions for how long it will last or, or is it over already?
1: In terms of the future is in a, a really challenging place at the moment. The whole industry is from hospitality right through to farming everywhere on the supply chain. The pandemic has changed how we uh, live our lives and people aren't going out and drinking as much and more people are choosing to buy more affordable beer from the supermarkets. My hope is, you know, I talk a lot about agriculture in the book and I'm really interested in food writing as well. And I read a lot of food writers that talk a lot about the supply chain and where what they eat comes from and who is this supporting, how much of the people who, who farm this get paid. It was on the news in the US last week that a hop farmer in the Pacific Northwest actually died from heat exposure. You know, Where's the scrutiny of the, of the supply chain in, in beer? I want people to be more interested in the fact that beer is something that's grown. It's a product of industrial agriculture. I want people to be able to connect back to the ingredients as much as they already do the brewing process. That's something I'm, I'm really fascinated in, like trying to expand the idea of beer beyond it's something that's brewed and then packaged and then shipped to you. We'll know that before then it's grown, um, it's, it's bred, it's trialled, the, the process of malting and, and kilning, it's incredibly complicated and costly. And that's even before you look at water and yeast and all the other ingredients and processes that go into making beer. So I think I'd like to see from from an industry side, more scrutiny on the supply chain, but from an employee side, it's becoming more and more evident that for many people working in beer hasn't been the positive experience a lot of people expected. And I think then this is hospitality wide, that there needs to be a greater focus on on supporting uh, the people who who work in breweries and, and, and make the beer and the people who work behind the bar. I don't have the answers to that right now, but I think more people need to be talking about it and... There needs to be a greater scrutiny from the industry about supporting the people, the supply chain. Well, they, all, they both feed into each other. I think the next few years are going to be, on an industry level, quite challenging, quite complex. But I think it's also, I think what I'd like to finish on and say is that there's still going to be delicious beer out there. Beer is still something to be savoured and enjoyed, whether it's something you're, that holds your attention completely or if it's just you know something you sip while you have a conversation with good friends. That's not going to go away. But I think being a consumer in 2021 and beyond, you've got to consume responsibly. You've got to take responsibility for what you buy and understand how it's made, where it comes from, who makes it. I think that's that's the responsibility everyone has. And I think that's going to play a huge part in the conversations we have about beer over the next 10 years.
5: So the book's out there. These conversations are just starting. But what's next for Matthew Curtis?
1: I'm hopefully going to do some events around the book. I've done a couple online, but I'm going to be trying to get around to some venues and uh, do some readings and tastings and have this conversation that we're having, but face to face with a beer in hand. I'm really plowing on with Pellicle, my magazine that I run with Johnny Hamilton, and then just writing for whoever will have me. I'm writing some stuff for beer, uh, some stuff for ferment and a few others. So I'll just keep ploughing on with these ideas that don't seem to go away.
5: (laughs) Most importantly, where can people get hold of
1: the book? So the best thing to do is to buy it direct from the camera website Uh, but it's going to be stocked by a few independent bottle shops and tap rooms. So I know, for example, uh, Siren Brewery have taken some for their tap room, Uh, Cloudwater have taken some, Double Barrelled, and then a bunch of bottle shops. And it'll be in a few major booksellers like Waterstones and Blackwells, international listeners, that might be your best bet. But if you're in the UK, the camera website is the best place to buy one.
5: Thanks ever so much for chatting today, Matthew. It's been uh, really enjoyable getting to the bottom of uh, modern
1: British beer with you. Thank you so much, Laura.
0: Yeah, that was a really interesting interview and that book is definitely one that I'll be looking out for at Christmas. Uh, hopefully somebody who might be buying a Christmas present is listening to that and I was looking at Matt's um, Pellicle magazine as well and some of the articles, one that caught my eye because I'm a, a huge fan of um, the Archers on Radio 4 and there's a, <laughs> a story he's got about um, how to recreate the beer, the shires, that they drink in the bull in the Archers. So I'm, I've never tried brewing beer and I I don't know that I'll start with a pint of shi- shires, but I did enjoy um, the article about that um, on, on the website. And
4: I, I was reading that too. I, I love the fact that it talks about how it's got a TripAdvisor review for that pub. Because <laughs> <laughs> really people are saying it's really hard to find. They're like, yeah.
0: it's an imaginary pub! No, it's a documentary. It is a documentary. It's not, <laughs> it's not made up. <laughs> Brilliant.
3: Absolutely fantastic, isn't it? Just nuts. Well, I think what was interesting about beers that that could never have been made 20 years ago. I suppose, again, I'm thinking way back now to some of the earlier seasons where we had the virtual British Beer Fest and we had the interviews with the hop farmers and all the different hop varieties that just couldn't have been cultivated at the time or, of course, importation wasn't as rife as it is today. So I don't know whether some of the beers could or would have been available 20 years ago, but certainly some of your bigger, uh, stronger American-style hop beers uh, have just inflated in the, in the past few years on the beer scene haven't they
6: I
4: think it's really interesting well when, when you're looking at it's not just small producers who are adding to the huge variety of styles and things but big brewers big pub companies have kind of had to embrace variety because of the demand from customers is there, you know. So yeah. you, you you can't really get away nowadays with just having like you know just a, a tiny selection of the same old things on a bar as maybe you could many years ago. You know, you've you've got to offer range because people because that's what people want. And that's a wonderful thing that the customer and people's awareness of the variety of beer has led to it them having to make these things.
0: Absolutely. I mean, I'm just thinking if the two biggest brewers in my part of the world and yeah the, the range of beers that uh, that they do now compared to the beers that i knew them for you know even say 20 years ago um it, it's changed dramatically and and as you say it is a good thing I, you know i'm not going to like every single one of them but um it's good to see that they're changing and trying new things
3: absolutely no longer is it just bitter dark and mild which there's nothing with any of those beer styles but it is nice to have the uh, the selection
0: And talking of beers, time for our We're Only Here for the Beer part of the podcast. This is where we dip into the Good Beer Guide, uh, the 2021 edition, because... um, we will. I guess we'll start on the 2022 edition at some point, but we're still on the 2021 edition at the moment. Uh, and we pick out pubs that we've either been to, or we're looking forward to going to, um, or perhaps we've been visiting over the summer. I don't know. Did, did you go on a uh, maybe a, a beercation, we'll or we'll perhaps like Matt, maybe you went on on a sort of seaside. Visit oh, Matt. <laughs> oh got
3: A minute. Who gave Claire the pond book? <laughs> that is yeah,
4: it. I'm gonna. That is what I'm going to be making. My next side is just to be kind a, seas, a seaside side, special. There you go, go for
0: it. <laughs> so, I haven't actually been away anywhere this summer, but I've been planning a holiday for next year, and I'm looking at quite near Ingleton in North Yorkshire. So I've been looking at the the Good Beer Guide, and there's a pub called the Ma- uh, called Masons in Ingleton. I don't know it because I haven't been to that part of the world before, but if I'm staying in the area, I'll definitely be looking in. The Good Beer Guide says it's an early Victorian building um, away from the centre of this popular tourist village, extensively refurbished in 2016, now a true family-run free house. Um, They have Sharps, Doom Bar and four changing beers, a small bar counter serving a long drinking space of linked areas, um, and they have live music featured but not on a regular basis. So... Uh, that will definitely be on the list of places I'll be visiting um, when I when I get away next year.
3: Sounds delightful, Claire. Well, I haven't been on a vacation as much as I went to see family in the summer, as one often does when the when the weather's good, and uh, found myself up with my brother-in-law up in Warrington, uh, more specifically Stockton Heath, which is not too far from where he's recently moved to with my sister-in-law and their wonderful children. And we found ourselves in Costello's Bar, and I'd never been in there before. Really, really nice little micro-style pub. Uh, lots of hand pumps, one of those places that you go in. You know when you're walking on a nice warm day and go, oh, look at all those different beers that they've got available. I'm going to try all of them. They're going to work left to right, have a handful of nuts and walk out of here later on and go for my dinner back at home. And it, it really, really nice place. Um An oasis of calm at the weekend, it says in the Good Beer Guide here. Now, the beer that I was drinking at the time was a locally sourced beer called Cheshire Cat. I remember it well. Really, really nice. Brewed by Wheatwood Ales and, yeah, Blondale. Drunk lots of it. Great time. And I shall be going back to Stockton Heath in the near future.
4: That sounds fantastic. Well, I also went to visit family. It was one of those things, wasn't it, where things kind of opened up again and uh, all, all the people I had got out of seeing for ages, all of my, uh, uh, where I was family, there's no excuse anymore. So I have yeah. to go go around, around the country. Um, so uh, I mean, it's a good job they don't listen, isn't it? You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> 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 they'll, they'll get in touch with. We just listen to your podcast for the first time. Like, uh, um, But uh, I went to see some people in Thornbury uh, and I did go to one of the pubs that is on, Uh, in the Good Beer Guide entry uh, for it, which is the Anchor Inn, uh, because it had a kids' play area. We could have lots of kids running wild, Uh, playing bulls in the rain as well. It was a nice drizzly day, as uh, we used to. But I've just noticed here, underneath it, um, the butcher's hook was the other entry for Thornbury. It says here that it was, uh, for uh, 200 years, was a butcher's shop. And it has some period features from that time, so I'm just imagining like some kind of like my kind of macabre meat hooks <laughs> yeah. and things that are on there, like of, you
0: know. a couple of cleavers on the wall or something. Yes, they're <laughs> <laughs> like, just going to be embedded in the doorway. Yeah.
4: And I really wish I'd gone there because that sounds like an absolute riot. So I'll go there next time.
3: Now then, we have our second feature interview, and having heard all about modern British beer it's cider's turn to be in the spotlight now cider has also had a renaissance in the last few years and there are more different ciders available now than ever Gabe Cook has come up with a book celebrating what (laughs) he says is probably the most exciting time ever for cider he is being interviewed by Alison Tafts drinks educator and owner of the Hop Inn and Hop Shop in Hornchurch Essex
6: So I'm delighted to be here today with Gabe Cook on the very eve of the publication of his wonderful new book, Modern British Cider. I've been lucky enough to have a little read of your book. I feel sort of honoured to have a little pre-publication read, and I have to say, it is fantastic. It is an exciting time at the moment, isn't it?
2: It is. I mean, you know, I, I call it the most exciting time for cider. In 400 years, now we find ourselves at a point whereby the influences of other drinks and, and you know considerable changes in consumer habits means that there are more producers and there are more products in different packaging types and flavor profiles they look wonderful they taste wonderful and it's trying to really get cider known and understood as this fantastic drink that, that you and I know it to be uh, and we're trying to just trying to get uh, the whole nation to understand just how amazing it is
6: in the book you talk about the number of cider makers that you think there are in in this country in these aisles at the moment
2: yeah uh, what well, it's, it's it's quite a difficult one to to accurately pinpoint cider, one of as, as well as being a joyous and celebratory time for cider, um, I do I do point out that there's quite a lot of challenges that hold it back from achieving its its full potential, um, and there is a paucity of lots of information and data. We don't know how many cider makers that actually are. I had to use a few different sources uh, and a bit of. Dare I say, but a guesswork to come up with a figure of about five hundred. It could be maybe more like six hundred, um, but it's difficult to know. It's a little tricky, but yet yeah, five or six hundred producers. Which, depending on how you view that, is, is quite a lot, or not many. Um, it, a lot of those, a significant proportion, I'd say probably at least two-thirds of those, sit below uh, what's called the 7,000-litre duty threshold. If you make less than 7,000 litres of cider in the UK, you don't pay any duty on it. So it's, it's quite a strong incentive to make a bit of cider, but not too much and so the majority of producers in the UK sit below that figure um, in fact one one little nugget that i managed to sort of pull out is that of if all of the all of the smaller all of those small cider makers under seven thousand liters, their total combined volume in a year um, is what uh, Strongbow sells in a day. That's pretty good, isn't it? So that just gives an indication of how our industry is quite skewed in terms of one very large, a handful of really big, not many mid-scale or sort of regional equivalent of the you know the regional family brewers. We don't really have that for cider, and then a lot of relatively very very small. Makers.
6: And one of the things you talk about in the book is that uh, 7,000 litre limit uh, holding back cider a little bit.
2: Yeah, it's it's a challenging one. So Cider Duty was reintroduced in 1976 and the reason why it came into play was a very practical one, that there were a considerably greater number of traditional old farmhouse makers at this point who were just making, you know, a few barrels and it kind of wasn't justifiable for the taxman to, to to go down and visit every single one of those makers. Um, it wasn't going to contribute sufficiently to the coffers of the treasury, um, so probably best. Well, a, a little bit is okay, and you know, adds to farm diversification, keeps these things kind of rolling on, and it has been a great thing to keep sort of tradition and heritage and culture going um, facilitating community orchards the protection of wonderful old orchards and to act act as a leg up for people who want to start cider making without a massive financial impediment but if your aspiration as a cider maker is to turn it into a full-time job, to turn it into your enterprise, to employ people, it actually acts as a bit of a a barrier. Because as soon as you make 7,001 litres, you have to pay a full duty rate on 7,001 litres, the same that any other cider maker would make, including all the way up to the world's largest. We don't have any kind of progressive duty system like beer has currently so this it, it acts as, as, a, as a help initially i think and then subsequently a hindrance it's a challenging one and i'm an advocate for cider having a progressive duty system much as beer has had you know since since um, the small brewers duty relief was introduced in 2002 it's been one of the key things that has facilitated the growth of circa 200 brewers to 2,000 brewers that we've got today ciders at the point of Gosh, we could do something to really help facilitate these smaller producers grow into these mid sized producers. That's something that I think is really important to have makers who are making a great product with integrity, higher juice content, bold flavor profile, expressing a range of styles and talking about those styles, but that are available a bit more nationwide or that start to sort of command a bit of a control of a particular area and region, whilst obviously also allowing smaller niche makers to, to to do their thing and the big and the big players are going to do what they do too. So I think it's all part of trying to create a really healthy and sustainable side of category.
6: Sounds so incredibly sensible. Is there anything we can do to help that process?
2: Primary thing is just Keep doing what you're doing, keep talking, keep advocating. This is, we're, we're at this point whereby, you know, every time, I'm sure that you have the exact same thing, and that anybody who's worked on a bar at a camera festival, the same conversation gets had every time. Would you like to try some cider? And the response invariably is, oh, I don't really like cider. There's such huge, considerable preconception that's been built up over the course of a good few decades that. just having to break down conversation by conversation and so it's it's just going to be um, it's just going to take time it's just going to take those conversations the cider makers are doing their bit by making great ciders that are starting to look and feel a bit different to try and help them break down some of those preconceptions camera is a fantastic supporter of cider um, and uh, lots of um, beer advocates and beer shops are starting to come around, and you have the epiphany of like, wow, cider can be this amazing drink that can share commonality with certain types of beers or certain types of wines as well, and that it that it is its own, you know, magical drink by itself. There's the, the prominence and the, uh, the emergence of, of wonderful Instagram side of bloggers and, and writers, the likes of Cider Review uh, and the Birram Collective. You know, the, this is part of why I think it really is the most exciting time. It's also the people who are advocating as well, the people who aren't the producers to create you know, a network, an industry of advocates. I would know when cider is really growing is when somebody else chucks their hat into the ring. Possibly foolishly, and says, "Yeah, I want to. I want to do cider full time from an advocacy point of view. That will be a really, really special day."
6: And I know that um, you're doing a lot towards that because I've been participating in your Penelé training, and it's wonderful to see people joining in those courses and, mm. and really getting into the detail of C- uh, the cider and perry with you. So, in terms of, um, we know that, that the cider's got huge potential beyond what we're currently seeing. Um, is something here about the quality? Uh, of the cider that we're talking about. Do people need to get more information?
2: From a consumer's perspective, um, I think a lot of them just ha- have assumptions that every single cider that there is, is is just made from apples and that some of them are sort of light and clean and fresh and easygoing and some are maybe a bit sort of bolder and earthier. But because there's no currently no legal obligation for cider makers to place any ingredients listing um, on on packaging. The, the majority don't. Juice content of ciders is, is always topical and it's a challenging one. You know, the UK regulations currently st- stipulate that um, there is a minimum juice content of 35%, so a cider can be majority water and still be taxed and, and be considered as a cider. I personally think that that is too low. I don't think that that helps cider's reputation and, and in the book I advocate that I think that the, minimum, the minimum juice content should be at 50% just from a fundamental point of view if you consider you know what is a cider it's fermented apple juice if something is majority not fermented apple juice it just doesn't Feel like that should be right, and the knock-on effect of you know ensuring that uh, the the fruit from more orchards gets utilised. There's a lot of excess fruit at the moment, and there's a threat to to orchards coming out of the ground. Um, And that's, that's especially an issue when it comes to the wonderful old traditional standard orchards of cider apples and peri pears. So so you've, you've got that aspect of things. And just, yeah, giving the consumer as much information about what goes into their cider, so they can make an informed decision. And part of this also comes down to to labeling and language as well. Have a little bit more factual information. There's a long way to go, um, but it's, I just feel really privileged to have the, the platform and the opportunity to put these things to paper. These are things that I've thought about for a long time and that um, have, have cropped up in conversations for all of the time that I've been involved in the cider industry, which is 15 years, nothing compared to lots of people. But you know, it, it just felt that this was just a wonderful opportunity to try and sort of set the record straight and you know, to try and address some of these challenges.
6: So if people are interested in reading more in depth about all these fascinating issues um, and hoping that um, you know, people will get behind that and most importantly, keep tasting cider, Uh, They can pick up a copy of Modern British Cider. When is it released, Gabe?
2: It is actually available for purchase on Monday, the 6th of September um, at cameraswebshopshop.camera.org.uk.
4: Well, there we are, folks. My hero and yours, Gabe Hook there. Um, I'm definitely going to get a hold of that book. And I, I was really interested about... Gay's v- view on, on Strongbow and tell you about how it kind of overshadows your producers.
0: Yeah, it was an amazing statistic. Something like, um, you know, more Strongbow is sold in a day than every other cider producer in the country sells in a week or something. I may have misheard that. It may that's not have been it sat is. in it's that
4: w- it, It's wild. I mean, some might say it's down to the wonderful advertising of Strongbow, but that's just, you know, I mean, and so as, as you all know, I used to work for Strongbow. So, so <laughs> I know. Um, so it, but it's interesting. I think it's something, it, it's actually amazing the scale, the production. I think it's Something like three out of five English apples go into making strongbow. Uh, which is an astonishing, like kind of yeah, dominant, yeah. sort of the market. But what what I didn't realise was, but was the restrictions, this this limit of of um, seven thousand litres, which is stopping producers from going above a certain amount. I mean, nobody's ever asked to, to for me to make more of my cider, so this has not <laughs> been like a, an issue for me. I believe begs for less is probably uh, uh, what it's been before. Oh, but, um, no, don't, but 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 this cliff edge, it does seem like it's a real it's a real unfairness that if you go to 7,001 litres you've got to pay the full duty on everything you know it's not like kind of st- it just seems like that's that's just such a, a an obvious injustice that needs to be changed
3: <laughs> you just reminded me of something that happened a few weeks ago actually with where home brewing is concerned and asking for more or less now one of my neighbours and I won't tell you how close he lives to my house but it's pretty close uh, decided to give homebrewing a go over the summer and uh and Put, put a couple of bottles over the fence, he says here yeah, i've made some of this uh, why don't you give it a try i didn't ask for any more he did, he, did, he, <laughs> he, did, he did he did insist on giving me more, but you're like Mm, yeah, it's uh, it's ripe was the word I used in the end, so it's quite ripe, but um yeah, perhaps give it another go in the future and I'll give I'll give it another try. But no more for me, thank you. I'll still have the two bottles you gave me and I've you know, I, I as much as got as I, I got so far as to smelling them and thought I'd better not.
4: <laughs> well everybody's in trouble because i've actually just got a new cider press for oh, my, um, just for my birthday up, just i know i've got I've, I've got a i've got a vigo press so i used to have like a really old like little small hand one but this one's like a six liter one so i could actually the potential of me making more on almost an industrial scale you're going into uh, the is,
3: mainstream yeah, it's terrifying
4: for everybody in the local area. <laughs> to be honest, they keep hiding apples off the trees when I'm just <laughs> desperately throwing them away when I come in, so I can't make it. But <laughs> there we are. Um...
0: <laughs> this new cider press. Then, when do you expect the first um, bottles or liters, gallons, whatever we we can expect from you, Matt? When when uh, when are you going to be sending them out? For, for well, review you know, purposes, th-
4: this episode is all about modern cider. I think mine's, mine's always like a postmodern cider in that. I think it'll probably be ready in about twenty thirty two, <laughs> given my uh, my so current rate of production. <laughs> 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 and, uh, well, so we're looking to the future of my cider, but we're going to go back in time now, yeah. first of all, to when there was a lot less good beer and cider around and less modern time uh, in the world of cider and beer. And uh, we're going to dive into the archives, back to what's Brewing from October 1989. Oh, yeah. And at this point, remember, around this time, brewers had only just started telling us the ABV of beer because the law forced them to do so, to be honest. It came into effect in July that year. And real ale drinkers were still suspicious. They, they thought that basically that, um, that a lot of companies were not saying what it said on the tin. And this, the headline of this article proves them right. So the article is that Allied Water Water Their Beer and i think that that uh, revelation would have resonated a lot with camera members at the time
0: wow. It was about a technical, technical invention, though, um, and something that we might be hearing more about in, in the future even. This was based on the idea of having concentrated beer that has the water added at the bar where it's being served, a bit like um, with some of the colas and lemonades and that sort of thing. <laughs> the carbonated water is added at the last minute. Now, uh, it probably sounds so delicious that you can't believe it didn't take off. But, yeah, I mean, it sounds hideous. But actually, I was looking on- online, and in some places, because of water shortages... And and that sort of thing. They're possibly similar setups making a comeback, but maybe not quite like this.
3: Yeah, there's something about a concentrated syrup and. Carbonated water that just doesn't ring bells for me, but yeah, the article does make it clear that the system hasn't uh, been invented with the beer drinker in mind, rather to cut transportation costs. There's always a rub, isn't there, for Allied Breweries? It's all about the uh, the the um, supply chain, if you like. The already giant Brewco had just merged with J Lions and were obviously looking for cost savings, as you do. Now they may not have consulted beer drinkers, of course they didn't, but they did commission a technical paper that concluded the resulting beer was. Totally acceptable. Not sure, <laughs> not sure who they commissioned hey. the beer with. Uh, but, you know, that, that sounds you know quite resounding and inconclusive to me, folks. Uh, of course, however, those days, um, long gone. But a big company could basically just pay some scientists to say whatever they wanted to and get away with it. I mean, even now, you just get those strange pictures of people on the side of packaging that says, oh, endorsed by such a person who's got a great glowing smile and you think oh well if they said it this person I've never heard of with no credentials then it must be true
4: yeah, three out of five beer drinkers yeah. said it was totally
0: acceptable. It's, terrible, yeah. <laughs> so it's like that's you know one is terrible, two is whatever, three is neither good nor bad, four is totally yeah. acceptable.
4: Totally yeah. acceptable. Yeah. Yeah, 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 It does sound like something you would say at knife point. <laughs> this is totally. Yeah. I'm being told to say that this yeah, so is
0: totally d- acceptable. Did, did you say that when your neighbour passed the beer over the fence? Mm, yeah, it's totally acceptable. <laughs> yeah,
3: I, I should have done. That. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I mean,
4: is it is it just me by the way i know this is this is terrible but i'm thinking what would the concentrate taste like you know <laughs> like oh is, that, is that the way i'm like it's four times this the the thing of normal beer i was like the, it, curiosity surely would mean you would have a spoonful wouldn't you i bet
3: it tastes <laughs> exactly like you think it would taste, like you know th- thick and sticky and not very delicious
4: like a kind of a Marmite, like Marmite oh. XO, like it's <laughs> a strong one that's yeah. like that makes your teeth go at edge because it's so strong. But
3: but
0: but, but Marmite was originally um, brewers yeast, sort of scraped up and put into a jar, wasn't it? Or you know that was how it originally got invented, was because yeah, it. it's a yeast extract, a isn't buy, it? A so.
3: byproduct, a waste product, put in a jar and put on toast. I mean,
0: why not? <laughs> uh,
4: there's a little test for our uh, listeners. If anybody wants to put some water in a Marmite jar and drink it oh, and tell us what it tastes like, <laughs> oh, oh, then uh, then don't. Blame us and don't tweet in.
0: (laughs) <laughs> I um, might try that. <laughs> I might try. I
4: mean, it's good. Uh, anyway, so, so it, it it turns out, by the way, that the uh, that since this uh, article was there, the, the company was bought by uh, probably the best known Danish brewer. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ooh, I won't yeah. name. I won't name. I think,
0: know I, know, I, th- I think I know
4: who you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, have got to give them the uh, time. But uh, the um, but I like the fact that it was the the article ends looking ahead, perhaps to a kind of Scandi noir future. It concludes that. If this technology was brought in, it would be a sinister and chilling development.
0: Yeah, and and as I just mentioned, the idea hasn't actually totally disappeared because there was this article in um, Scientific American describing a, a very similar technology. It's being used by a Colorado company and it's to cut the carbon footprint of beer distribution. So the process sounds like it's a lot more complicated and the taste probably is taken into consideration this time around, but the beer concentrate is separated from the alcohol, which is then added to water and CO2. All the alcohol can be left out altogether if you would prefer alcohol-free beer. And it it, it does sound about as far from real ale as you can get, and it does sound very science fiction-y, but you can sort of see why they're possibly trying to cut the maybe amount of water used or, or something like that.
3: Uh, uh, Do you know what? The way I see it, right, is if you're really worried about your carbon footprint for beer distribution, just send it to the local pubs and drink local, folks. We've been (laughs) harping on about it for ages. Support your local breweries, support your local pubs. It doesn't need to come from far and wide. Yes, those beers are lovely, but so are the ones made down the road as far as I'm concerned. So let's not get too depressed about the dystopian future of beer and the Terminator ordering something next to you at the bar and possibly (laughs) cider. (laughs) Uh, I'll have a real ale.
4: Uh, as, <laughs> as, as, uh i'll i'll have a cider in black
3: <laughs> as, uh, <laughs> I can only imagine the (laughs) T2000 ordering (laughs) half a side pocket for for a toad.
4: I need your sunglasses, your shoes and your pints.
3: (laughs) I I I think we're going off on a tangent here, folks. Let's bring it all back. But listen, there's plenty of good stuff to be had as we're coming to the end of the episode. Now, I shall call last orders this week and this is where we all nominate a pint we have enjoyed recently. So, who wants to go first?
4: I will, uh, because we were talking about one of the modern beer trends being um, uh, food miles or beer miles, you know, beer, drinking things that are, that are hyper-local uh, to you. And, and I had an example of that last night. Uh, that's why I've got a bit of a fuzzy head today. Uh, went to my uh, my favourite local, I've talked about it a lot, The Rising Sun at Berkhamsted. Uh And uh, Tring Brewery, just down the road, I've talked about them a lot, but they had their lager which they're only wow. actually making available. Um, I think it might only be in that pub. It's certainly only in local pubs around the area. So the, uh, the B-miles on that are uh, are absolutely spot on. And it's called Alchemist. And I say I would, usually wouldn't recommend a lager, of course, but, it, but it's made by a great producer. And it was absolutely delicious, really complex, you know, kind of yeah. nothing like, you know, what, what a kind of, you know, some awful lagers would be. It was fantastic. So that was my last
0: orders. Well, I was at a beer festival yesterday and actually most of the beers, um, they weren't entirely local. Quite a few were. I mean, one was from literally around the corner where the festival was taking place, but a lot from um, the, the neighbouring counties and um, Essex, Suffolk, Norfolk, that sort of thing, East Anglia, um, at this beer festival. And uh, I had quite a few to choose from. Um, some were what I'd call uh, totally acceptable. Others were <laughs> <laughs> a bit better. <laughs> so, for, so for my, my last order. Um, I've chosen the Leon C Brewery at, at Leon C. in Essex um, and they produce a beer called Kersal Gold. It's 3.8%. It's a vegan beer and it's an English-style gold with cascade hops and it was really nice. I mean, I, I don't think I've ever had a bad beer from Leon C and, and I don't see them that often at, um, at beer festivals or, or loc- certainly not locally to me. So it's always really nice to, to try some of their beers and, and Kersal Gold is, is my pint. Um, for last orders today
3: lovely stuff well i referred earlier to a a self-made beer festival that i'd hosted and we had brews and beers from papworth brewery which isn't too far from me it's in huntingdon and papworth are are renowned for some delicious beers deliciously drinkable ales actually is is one of their strap lines. now you've heard of post-modern beer what about post-lockdown ale now this beer and i am not lying when i tell you this is called bollocks to covid19 it's absolutely fantastic
0: (laughs) are we allowed to say that's that before the watershed that is the name
3: of the beer claire it's a light ruby ale it's delicious now the description on the back's brilliant listen to this right it says drinking this beer won't cure you of covid19 as it's useless as a hand sanitizer but if you close your eyes while you're drinking it you might just remember a time when you could enjoy a pint at your favorite pub And uh, absolutely delicious stuff. Now, they actually brewed it as a one-off in the lockdown when it first started last year. and, And it was one of those that all of the money and proceeds went to NHS charities to support them. It was, was obviously so popular that they've rebrewed it and now all of the funds to that beer go to Adam Brook's Teenage Cancer Unit, which is just amazing. So I feel good about drinking the beer anyway. So my beer of the week is bollocks to COVID-19. And I say it loud and proud. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you, Patworth, and thank you to everybody who's brewing all these delicious beers. Remember, folks, get on out there, support your locals. If there's a festival going on, go up there and, have, and enjoy yourself. Matt's not shy of the rain. You shouldn't be either. Sun... Hail, snow, wind, go out and and go for it. Uh, Now, next time, we'll be looking at the Champion Beer of Britain competition and discussing the ever-growing range of beer styles. We'll also be looking at some past champions and what impact winning had on their creators. Lovely stuff. But for now, we hope you've enjoyed listening. It's good to be back. We're here for Season 4. Get in touch with us on that Twitter feed at Pubs pints People. But for now, from all of us, it's a big fat Cheers.
4: cheers. Cheers. Cheers.
0: How does a free case of beer sound? Yes, you can grab a case for free, courtesy of our pals at Beer52, by going to www.beer52.com forward slash people, that's the numbers 5, 2 in the 52, and covering the meagre postage cost of £5.95. And what's more, as a special offer for our listeners, they'll throw in two extra beers for free, so that's 10 unique craft beers.
2: Beer52 is actually the biggest beer club in the world. Each month they send their members a case of beer from a different part of the world, and this month it's an absolute belter. Their great European road trip case takes in the best beers from across the continent.
6: So try a crisp, refreshing Pilsner from Norway's Lervig Brewery and a monster 7.5 double IPA from Sweden's Derges Brewery. On the dark side this month, there's a smooth stout from Copenhagen's Tool. There's also beer from Croatia, Poland, Germany, Serbia, and Austria, among others.
0: And if dark beer is not your thing, you can choose the light only case. Also included is the ever insightful ferment magazine and a couple of tasty snacks. And even if, after all that, you're still unsatisfied, you can simply pause or cancel at any time.
2: So head over to www.beer fifty two that's the numbers five and two dot com forward slash people to claim your free case of ten beers now.